The game podcast is proudly sponsored by StarCityGames.com, and this weekend Star City is hosting Grand Prix Atlanta, so grab your favorite standard deck from the Pro Tour. The week after that is SCG Baltimore, which is a team event featuring Standard, Modern, and Legacy. Each weekday on StarCityGames.com, you can find premium articles by myself, Brad Nelson, Patrick Chapin, Sam Black, and many others. Hey everyone, welcome to the 52nd episode of the Game Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Thompson. Here with me is Brian Gottlieb, and I just got back from Pro Tour Ixalan. It was a weird Pro Tour, Brian. Yeah, it sounds like it was not your finest hour. You know, hopefully there's something to glean from it, something to learn from it. We'll move forward, we'll talk about it, and we'll be ready for the next one. Yep, for sure. And the next one is modern, so I don't know how much I'm actually looking forward to it, but... It'll be no, good. come on. Listen, our, our modern shows are by far our most popular. If, if you start talking bad about modern, we're going to lose half of our audience right now. So mm. at least pretend like you love modern. No, no. I'm, I, see, I'm real. That's I, true. I keep I keeps it real. That is your MO. You're the guy who, who tells the truth. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll be honest. I have a wavering opinion of modern, but right now it's cool. So I would be excited to play the Pro Tour. I like modern right now. I'm just apprehensive because I I know exactly like you know how ridiculous modern can be at times. So it can be. I'm just cautiously optimistic. I think, but this PT was Ixalan. It felt weird testing for this because I had played nationals and worlds in the same format already. So leading into the pro tour, I was all, already kind of soft locked on teamer just because you know how how wrong could it be, right? Like the deck is really good and. Even in the last couple of weeks, the Magic Online results were pretty interesting. Like there are a reasonable amount of sweet decks that started doing well. And even the article I wrote was just about how like Standard was more wide open than people thought it was. Like it, despite the field being like 50% energy variance, like I think it is pretty clear that there was some cool stuff that actually like shone through. I totally agree. And also, I, I think as you tell the story of this tournament, I have a feeling it's not going to be a story about choosing the wrong deck. I think Teamer was probably a fine choice as evidenced by its success. Not every Teamer deck that showed up could win. So, Dude, I liked my Teamer list too. So do you want to talk about kind of the specific things you did in your list? I basically had some Sky Sovereigns and was trying to figure out what the best plan for the mirror was while also trying to respect everything else. You know, there's Black Red Aggro was a deck that was kind of scary and was something I worked on for a little bit because my initial assessment of that deck based on how it was built with all the Bontu's Last Reckonings and stuff was that like, well, it's teamer matchup has to be horrible if they have to like jump through hoops to try and beat them that way. And that's just not the case. Like the the Black Red deck is actually pretty good. And then there were like some mono black variants and stuff like that to the point where I thought that maybe mono red would have a lower percentage of the metagame, but I, I still wanted to play like the Magma Sprays. I didn't want to play four color or Saltai or anything. Big Saltai, I mean, not like the Constrictor one because those lists were just much worse against aggro decks. And it was getting to the point where I was like, eh, maybe Snake Ballista is good again if everyone's playing like Dreadwanders and stuff. So uh, it does seem like Snake Ballista was in fact good again. I think that's kind of the big story of this tournament. Yeah, for sure. And uh, so Seth wins the Pro Tour with, I guess, 58 of the same 60 that Danny Jessup used to win SCG Dallas. Yeah, I just looked this up. It kind of blew my mind. I was like flipping back and forth between the two deck lists on, in two different windows and nothing was changing. It was just the exact same cards. You know, this is going to forever be known as Seth's deck and to some extent, rightfully so. I mean, he he just won a Pro Tour and no one can take that away from him. I'm not trying to diminish the accomplishment. But props to the Jessup brothers for maybe figuring it out in week one. Uh, they had kind of a, a pretty awesome main deck. And some things changed in the sideboard. But a lot of the sideboard tech actually carried over as well. So, you know, I just wanted to take a second to give the Jessups props because uh, your week one deck just basically won a pro tour. Yeah, for sure. And my teamer list, like how I was trying to attack the format was like Sky Sovereign. I know the Glorybringer is still very good. And my plan against things like Scarab God were to coup it, Rivers rebuke it, and maybe just like go under them with dragons and stuff. So like, I, I think I was pretty cognizant of the four color lists and like how they were trying to win the game. And I think the Sky Sovereigns are just excellent there. And I think my deck against like the Saltai Constrictor deck was probably very good too. 
obviously the boats are pretty nice in that matchup. Yeah, they seem great. And and you kind of I don't want to steal your your teachings here because we talked a little bit about this previously. And you kind of clued me in to exactly how the Sultai deck was able to gain possibly a positive matchup against Teamer at this stage. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and kind of clue everyone else in on how you see how you saw it going over the course of the tournament? Yeah, Brad's Brad's rationale was that as time went on, the Teamer decks became a little bit more inbred and uh, started, you know, being greedier, adding things like Vraska, Scarab God, uh, Jabberwocky 5-0'd a daily event that was like almost straight four color. He was basically Sultai, Splashing Harness Lightning, and Whirler Virtuoso. So uh, he was trying to like, you know, keep the good removal spell against Glorybringer, uh, still keep Whirlers for the aggro decks, but also play a bunch of black cards like Gaunti and Scarab God and Vraska that gave him an edge in the mirror match. That makes you way worse against aggro decks, and as it turns out, it makes you way worse against Sultai Constrictor, too, because the Glorybringers and the Chandras are the cards that really help in those matchups, and I guess like Sky Sovereign, too. Yeah, so a lot of the team decks started losing some of the best cards against Sultai, and also some of the cards they started turning to to kind of win the mirror look very silly against Sultai, like something like Confiscation Coup into Blossoming Defense. Can you think of a bigger blowout right now? Like... What a beating that interaction yeah, I, is. I, I don't think there is a bigger blowout. Like, that. that is just it. Yeah, so uh, now having that explained to me, it, it's very clear how kind of, you know, again, we're seeing a circular format. Things come around, things go, and, and one week, you know, we had talked previously about how bad Mono Red was. Just going back two weeks, Mono Red turned out to be a great choice for this tournament, where it was kind of a horrible choice for Worlds. We didn't think it was a great choice for Nationals, but it seemed like Mono Red performed very well at this tournament. Yeah, and I think the reason for that is that everyone finally started playing a bunch of harsh mentors and rampaging Ferocidons. Yeah, they adapted the new technology that finally gave them what they needed in the Teamer matchup. And, you know, Teamer's role was kind of the red killer for a long time. I think that's how Teamer kind of first rose to prominence that it holds now is in the face of the mono red explosion. Yeah, definitely. That may not be true anymore. I, I don't know. Mono red is, is packing some serious cards against Teamer at this stage. Yeah, I thought since uh, Black Red looked like it had a pretty good matchup against Teamer that it might be more likely that people, you know, try playing that deck instead of the Red deck. But the people who played Red just figured out a way to have like a reasonable matchup against Teamer. And I still kept like two of the Chandra's defeats in my sideboard, basically for the mirror. But I also knew that like, you know, there would be some amount of mono red and Rampaging Frostodon is the scariest card. And sometimes Mardu has a bunch of red creatures and stuff. So I don't know, man, thinking like the more I think about this, the more disappointed I am by my like horrendous finish because I don't think my deck was bad for the tournament. So so how did we get to where we ended up? One in five, right? Not to rub it in, but but one in five was the end result. Yeah, yeah. That's just a fact, man. No rubbing it in. No worries. So the draft was Ely Cassis feeding Calcano, feeding me. The rules for the double face cards were that you had to draft it in the middle of the table so that people could see it. Like like you, f- you physically had to like pick it up from the center of the table? No, no, no. So like, you know, the draft starts, everyone shows everyone their, their double face cards. But when you draft it, you don't put it in your pile and you don't cover it. Like you put it on top of like your booster packs that are remaining and then you draft the other cards in a separate pile so that your DFC is like basically always visible. Always revealed. Okay. What they're trying to do is cut down on people trying to look around the table, right? So like if someone opens a DFC and they slam it, maybe not physically slam it, but just like take it immediately to get a competitive advantage, the players at the table are incentivized to look around the table to see if anyone took a DFC, right? Yes. And this discourages like actually looking around because you place it in the center of the table where it is visible to basically everyone. So uh, Calcano on my right opens up Vance's Blasting Cannons. And I think that this card is a little overrated probably. Like it is definitely not Outpost Siege and it is definitely not as easy to transform, I think, as people think. But it is still very good given like what Calcano likes to draft. It seems like it would go right in his decks. Because mm-hmm. he's all about like low curve auras, like one drops and stuff. But uh, there's there's also just like, you know, been some talk about how like, you know, the card's overrated. It's not as good as like everyone thought it was initially, which I agree is true. But like, I didn't know to what degree people, how, how far did it fall in their pick orders and stuff, right? Yeah. So I open a pack 
with a red card, a blue card, and a green card that I could realistically first pick. And if I wanted to do something fancy, I could have, you know, but it, it was basically like I have choices between teamer cards and Calcano is like taking his sweet time with the Vance's blasting cannons. Like he hasn't just like slammed it already. And it just gets to the point where they say draft and I just take the red card because I'm like, well, if, if he was going to take the cannons, he would have just taken it immediately to like show people. Right. So I put down my red card. He puts down his blasting cannons and I'm just like, God damn it. Wow. That's a really interesting situation. Yeah. I talked to him afterwards and he was just like, oh yeah, man, I didn't think about that. And I, I didn't know if it was like, you know, he thought that cannons was just like a bomb and like, obviously he's going to take it. Like he doesn't have to slam it, you know, realistically that, that did not end up screwing me because I just slid into white black vampires from there and my deck ended up pretty good. I, I wasn't too disappointed about like the draft itself or what happened or whatever, because I, it didn't cost me anything, you know, like I wasn't going to play either one of those first picks regardless. Yeah. If you, if your choices were between a red, blue and a green card and you end up in white, black, it's kind of irrelevant, but it's a really interesting situation and, and one that uh, the rules are only kind of prepared for. There's some gray area there as to how you're supposed to proceed, I think, because if right. you're, they're trying to restrict you from looking around the table, but they're also encouraging people to openly share information in the center of the table. Do you know what I mean? It puts you in this awkward spot where you're like kind of fixated on this one area where you need to see if he's taking this card or not. Right. And I, I also like, they say draft, right? And it's like, okay, you're supposed to like put down your card and pass the pack. Like, but can I you wait for him to finish his draft? Like, right. yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a really weird scenario, yeah. you know? And like, like I said, I don't, I don't think it messed me at all, but I did want to talk about it. And I guess like one of the things that could have gone differently is like, maybe I can't, I passed the fire cannon blast that I took and the guy on my left takes it. Cause he's like, oh, I'm two seats down from a red guy. Maybe I'm okay. And then I don't know if that the person on my left was white or black or what, but it's like, yeah, maybe that sets me up to have a better draft. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you know, these things snowball throughout an entire draft. So certainly the entire draft changes around that point, but it's hard to say, you know, how it does. Yeah. But just like a a very weird scenario. Yeah. And one that probably won't be replicated too many times, right? Like this is kind of the first discussion I've heard of anything like this, despite the fact that we've done a lot of double face stuff now, like this has become a fairly common theme in magic. And this is kind of the first talk along these lines I've had across my, you know, podcasting experience, which is involves weekly talking about these kind of issues. And this is the first discussion. So it's really interesting. Yeah. So at at Worlds, the reverse kind of happened where Ephro opened Allegiance Landing. Owen was on his left. And then there was like a delay before the draft actually started. And we were trying to clarify what the rules were like, Ifro was like, you know, can I can I draft it in the middle of the table? Can I if I take it immediately, like what if Owen like looks at my picks or whatever and they're like, well, if we think he's like peeking at the cars in your pack, he's gonna get DQ'd. Owen's just like, you know, god damn it. Like, I'm pretty sure Ifro's gonna take Legion's landing, but like what if he doesn't, right? And I, you know, so the rules are all kind of silly. I kind of think the best solution for this was the solution of sleeving the double face cards. I know that's unpopular with a lot of people, and they kind of like the wrinkle that this additional strategic element added to a draft. Right, but um, you have to figure out how to actually utilize that strategic element and how you want that information disseminating. Exactly. exactly. And I don't think there's a good answer for that right now. And I kind of like, there's also something to be said, and it, it, there's always a problem with putting too much stock in Magic Online due to its you know, fairly obvious flaws, but drafting two different formats, one where you can see double-faced cards and one where you can't. Most people preparing for a Pro Tour have only practiced in the context of Magic Online drafts. I think that's a safe thing to say. It's definitely a minority who get together and do live drafts. Uh, Certainly in previous Pro Tours, yeah, this one was a little different because there was Nationals. Yeah, that's true. The the timing was very different and fair point. But generally with double face cards, you're, you're dealing with kind of a very real experience gap in terms of the nuances of drafting a double face card. Right. And Pro Tour... Uh, Eldritch Moon, I th- no, or Shadows, PT Shadows, they just leaved all the cards, which yes. I liked because it was the same as my preparation. Yep, I agree. I, I think that's the cleanest solution to double-face cards. I don't know if they didn't go that route this time because there's very few double-face cards, so they didn't think it was, you know... Is it worth it to take all the time to sleeve all the cards? And Yeah, I, I don't have an answer for that. I don't know what the manpower investment is. I mean, it seems fairly large, but I don't know. I, I think the correct solution was to just leave everything. I think that will probably always remain the correct solution for elite level play and double face cards. But then it's like, 
you're not doing that in day two of a GP, which you'd also put on kind of the same scale. Do you do it for a top eight draft in a GP? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know where you draw the line. So Yeah, me either. And if you don't do it during the Swiss of a GP and you do it for top eight, then it's what you're talking about where it's like a a different format. Yeah, effectively a different draft format. So anyway, not to harp on that. It was was a a sweet situation uh, that I thought was interesting. So round one, I played Ely. And he was like blue-green cards with a Rivers Rebuke. Like I said, I was white-black vampires. And I didn't have like a ton of ways to break board stalls or anything. It was just like I had creatures and tricks and removal, some flyers, but like no great way to like actually get through. And I basically just lost a Rivers Rebuke twice. And I think I probably could have drafted uh, in a way to like maybe make my deck better against those scenarios. But like I'm not sure how realistic that was. And then mm-hmm. round two... Kitesail Freebooter, my opponent. He's stuck on four, has two cards. I take his Queen's Commission, leave him with a five drop. Attacks with his flyers and passes. And I'm I'm also stuck on four, and I have like a deacon in my hand and like all this other stuff. But I also know that like the coast is clear, so I just like attack him with like my ten creatures and like I have a rallying roar to get through a bunch of damage and like kill some of his blockers and stuff. Mm-hmm. And he, he settled the wreckages me. Hmm, whammy. Not a lot you can do about that one. Off the top, rare. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of how I looked at it too initially. It's just like, how am I realistically supposed to play around this, right? But like, I did not have to. Att- like, I was I was at 12. He's attacking me for basically one because he has two 1-3 flyers and I have a 1-2 flyer. So it's not like I'm under like a huge amount of pressure. And it, it's kind of messed up because like if I drew fifth land for Deacon, I'm just like sending with one three one lifelink every turn, you know? So it's just like, I just like trick myself into like playing a longer game instead of doing this. And I definitely have the way to beat Settle the Wreckage, but it was like, eh, whatever. Like if he settles me, I get like all of my lands out of my deck and I get to like play two creatures, untap, like play three creatures or something because I was stuck on lands. Yeah. Uh, so he draws the bishop or the land for his bishop or whatever and just like attacks me and drains me out. So I, I think that while you may want to do some revisionist history there, playing around Settle probably opens you up to a million other things, even if it doesn't appear to at the time. I, I don't know, man. It's hard to beat yourself up. Did I have to attack with all 10 creatures? No, I could have attacked with like six or something and kept like a reasonable board back. And like I could still alpha him the next turn or whatever. Anytime he taps out, obviously I just kill him, right? I just need to get him in range of like a lethal attack. And if he's just like accumulating cards in hand and just like draw going, it's like, okay, well, I know something's going on, right? I I just feel like that turn, I definitely did not have to like pedal to the metal attack with everyone. And I think there have been games in draft formats where I have played around rares and like I had the luxury to do so. I get that. And certainly there's been games where I've played around rares too, but the turn after you freebooted kind of changes that's, the equation a little bit. Dude, that's why it's so messed up, right? It's so yeah. sick. Yeah. It's just like the perfect situation, but I could have played around it. And I think if if I was playing legitimately great, I would have won that game. No, that's, that's fair. And to be fair, there's a lot more gain from you looking at how you could have possibly played that game to not be vulnerable than there is to say like, oh, he got me. You're learning for the future. I just got lazy, straight up. I was in a situation where I have like a commanding lead because I have a bigger board and more cards in hand. My card quality is better from from the looks of it. And it's just like, okay, how how do I possibly lose this game? That is what I need to figure out because I just kind of had him cornered, you know? Mm. And I, I didn't play around it. I, I gave him a window to actually beat me and he took it. But it, it's funny, like that was game one. The match was like, I mold a six, six and five. His deck is not good and asked me if it was my first PT and like, you know, all this stuff. So it's like he he played reasonably well, but mm-hmm. it was still just like, man, I could I could just complain about this match. Right. I could just be like, I mulligan a bunch. He peeled, settled the wreckage, blah, blah, blah. But no, I blew it. That's a healthy way to look at it. And certainly one that will benefit you in the future. Probably a good lesson there. Never, ever go on autopilot. Yeah. I think is, is rule number one, especially at a pro tour, man. The, the margin for error at, at a pro tour if you want to have a successful result is so, so small. You just can't afford many mistakes. It is. I don't know. I don't know if I've been complacent because like the last few PTs I played in, I've done like reasonably well by my standards. You know, it's like, I'm not asking for much at this point. It's just like, I want the process to be good and I want to give myself a shot to like actually be in a position to do well. I don't even necessarily need to do well 
there are some decks, like when I played Zombies, for example, like I just knew that deck really well. Like I understood how it lined up against a lot of things. I understood how I was supposed to play it. And that's just like years of playing mid-range, basically. And it's just like a pretty straightforward deck. So like I could play it with my eyes closed, you know? I think for this Pro Tour, there was no... I, I don't know. I kind of felt the same way. It's just like, oh, I played Teamer a bunch. You know, I played it in Nationals. I did fine. You know, I like 6-0 drafted Nationals. And I, th- I think part of that was just like, oh, I, I like don't even need to try. Yeah, Magic will humble you real quick whenever you get in oh, that kind yeah. of mindset. Dude. I've done it many times. Dude, you just immediately get punished. It's awesome. Yeah. Yep. It's a good way to check yourself. <laughs> Anytime you think you're really good at the game, it'll bring you back down. Anytime you're like, oh, this is easy. You're going to get brought back down. That's just the way Magic is. It's incredibly taxing. And... You know, you can do all the preparation in the world and and feel like you have a tournament in the bag and you let your focus slip for one minute and you make a chain of mistakes and that's it. That's the end of your tournament. It's also kind of feel bad because you don't, your mistakes don't always get punished, you know? Mm. In, In this tournament, it was just like, I got punished every time and it was kind of awesome. So... I'm O2. Uh, round three, I win. I win my rounds. I, I think I played legitimately pretty good that round, so that felt nice. And then on to constructed, I play three straight aggro decks: mono red, mono red, black red. At least in one game per match, I did another like subtle thing where I I think I could have won like those games. That's crazy because I think the way you enter a pro tour is all you want is to have kind of the opportunity to have a say in the outcome of your games. If you get to make the decisions that determine your games, you feel pretty good about your day in most cases. You know, you didn't, yeah. get, you didn't get mana screwed. You didn't show up with the wrong deck. You were able to get the chance to make your decisions. And, you know, on your best days, you use that to kind of catapult yourself to success. But I guess these were unfortunately not one of your best days. No, and I, I can say a lot of things about like the games themselves where – it always felt like I was flooded and I never drew a high enough density of like five drop things. So like my opponents had Hazret basically every game and I never drew like Coup or Glorybringer or the boat. Mm-hmm. So like the games were hard, especially since I was like kind of flooding out and now they have Hazret and Ramanap Ruins. So like it doesn't matter what they draw. They're just always drawing a shock. But no, there was like a point in game three where... I, I basically was just like, I'm pretty sure I just like need to draw a flyer to win instead of like figuring out like, you know, can I attack with my five creatures and keep these two back? And like, if they draw a burn spell, I'll probably lose. But like, I could have tried to navigate like some really tight races. And instead, I'm just like, well, I'll do like what looks obviously fine. You know, it's just like, okay, I'll attack with four creatures and leave three back to play around a burn spell. But like, there's no shot that that wins me the game unless I peel a five drop. Can you point to a reason why you just didn't have it for this tournament? Can you think of anything that just like your mental focus wasn't there? You had kind of, you know, you were just coming off a really nice result at nationals and you didn't have the motivation or is it just, you know... You got up the day of the Pro Tour and things just weren't going your way and you weren't able to find that focus. Uh, I, I haven't gone through this recently, I think, where it's where like I get punished for not trying my hardest. So, yeah, like the, the last few PTs, it's been like I, I think I, I think I'm playing well and maybe I'm autopiloting and like maybe there are tough situations that I know are tough situations that I can navigate. But just for whatever reason in this tournament, I, I was just like, yeah, screw this guy. I'm going to attack with my 10 creatures. You know, like whatever. That mindset is just like so bad to have. And I think I probably did just get complacent at some point. So this is a nice wake up call because I got punished every time. And that, that's why I say it's awesome. It would be one thing to like get punished once and not have it like actually affect me all that much. It's like, oh, OK, whatever. Or like maybe I get punished, but still win the match. But no, you just get obliterated time after time here. Yeah, like it was Four of my six matches. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, a really good like case study for, you know, it's it's hard to fault you for kind of thinking things will work themselves out, given how well things have gone for you lately in the Magic Arena. And I've had this for me before, too, where I'm just like on this hot streak where there's times where it feels like I can't lose a Magic. Like just there's nothing you can do that will beat me. Every decision I make will work out. Every line I take is going to be the right one. Then you go into the next tournament with that same mindset. And you realize that mindset's actually costing you all over the place and you're not playing optimally and you're, you know, banking on situations that you really don't have to bank on, which is kind of exactly what you're describing here. Right. And you, you have to try every yeah. tournament. It doesn't matter. 
doesn't matter if I've played teamer a bunch or I've drafted a million times. Like I still have to try the end. Yeah. And that's the good thing about magic. I mean, it's, it's frustrating on a day, but like, that's what you ultimately appreciate is that every time you sit down to play magic, if you aren't at your best, you're probably not going to get the results you were really looking for. It always taxes you. It always demands a lot of you. And that's why it's the best game ever made. So. Yep. I don't want to sound like I'm overly positive about the whole experience or whatever. Like there were definitely like I dropped when I was one and four and then eventually undropped and played round six. But uh, I, it was just like, man, I'm getting punished for all this stuff. Like, why can't I just like draw a sky sovereign? And like, I wouldn't have lost or like how, why did he peel settle the wreckage or whatever? And just like, it kept happening. And I'm just like, I know it's my fault. Right. But it, it like takes a while for that to like set in and like be okay with it. Because That's what I was going to ask. Were you conscious at the time that it was your fault? Like, was it just, oh, in your yeah. mind, this is just oh, my yeah. fault. I have no excuse for this. Yeah, no, it, it was for sure. And when I was like talking to Cho and stuff, it was like, okay, like here's the, here's the situation with the settle. And he's just like, oh yeah, dude, like brutal bad beats or whatever. And I'm like, well, no, cause like, you know, could have played around it and all that stuff. Like it is my fault. And he kind of said what you said, I think, where it's just like, it's not reasonable for you to play around it in that situation. But I think it was. Yeah. As a bystander, it's a weird spot, right? Because Cho's incentivized to be supportive and to keep you up and not let you get down about it and be like, ah, I would have done the same thing. So you don't feel bad about it and carry it into your next round. Yeah. But I should feel bad about it and I should tighten the hell up. That would be the right approach. That's probably a champion's approach. Yeah, we we were a champion one day. It was not it was not this weekend. It is it is deserving, you know. You know, speaking of champions, I know you don't watch a lot of League of Legends. Did you happen to see the footage of Faker crying after the dude end of the league? Dude, it was so good. Like not yeah. not like oh man, I'm happy that guy's crying or whatever. But it's like holy crap, dude! Like he he won worlds three years in a row. He's won three times. There was a year break between the three. Okay. Victories. Okay, yeah, so he loses in the finals to uh, Samsung, who they played in the finals last year, correct? Yes, correct. And, yeah, he, he loses, and from my understanding, it wasn't even necessarily stuff that he did. It was, like, no, kind of... He, he no, ama- he was amazing throughout the entire tournament. Like, just absolutely... He totally lived up to his reputation. He is the greatest league player of all time. It's indisputable. You know, every now and then an argument pops up that, like, someone is getting better than him, but it's all just kind of, like show he is the best and no one's even close to his level yeah and he loses it's not even necessarily on him and he's just inconsolable inconsolable like literally could not lift his head off of his computer desk because he was so broken by it and like he's won everything he wins all the time everyone knows he's the greatest and it still breaks him to that degree like that's the kind of willpower and dedication it takes to just be the best at something it was it was really like awe-inspiring and as much as i've always respected him like now I just want to see him win. I want him to come back with a vengeance next year and just be ruthless and dominate the entire league. Dude, I, I saw a tweet that was just like, you know, I don't know if this is like the end of Faker or if they just unleashed like some demon hell spawn. Yeah, I, I have a feeling it's going to be the later. Yeah, I, I can't I can't imagine. It's like if that's your mentality, like you lose and it is so crushing to you. I can't imagine him just being like, I give up. No, there, no chance. I mean, the degree to which he already like asserts his will on the game is extremely impressive and i am very excited to see what he does next year now that we've transitioned fully into a league of legends podcast we'll do a breakdown of uh you know patch 8.21 next just keep it going (laughs) i'll pass (laughs) we'll get we'll get show on the mic with you Mm. so yeah man that was that was my pro tour there were some other scenarios kind of similar that were, were effectively the same thing it was just like really small decision that I could have made that most of the time won't matter, but ended up mattering. I got punished the end, and then I booked a Saturday morning flight home because I want to get the hell out of there. Been there. I, I hope you utilize the rest time to you know recoup. Are, are you going to Atlanta this weekend? God, no. I am yeah. going to Portland in two weeks, though. I thought about going to Atlanta. Flights are unfortunately really expensive. I do think this is a fairly interesting format. And I think there's kind of a lot of really interesting stuff lurking just below the surface that's yeah, still not totally explored. Right. And I mean, this this is a constructed podcast. We talk primarily about standard. We're 32 minutes in. I suppose we should do that at some point. Sure. We can chat about it. Mention it briefly. Okay, sure. <laughs> I mean, we could just talk about anime. That would work too. But Yeah, I would do that as well. But I, I think we'd probably lose even more. We'd lose the other half that wasn't offended when you express your distaste for modern. So. No, I mean, what's what's the Venn diagram for like 
modern and anime, right? Like there's got to be some overlap of people who like what well, like one or the overlap. other. It's like 100%. That that's my prediction right now. Just 100% overlap. Ooh, I don't know about that. All right, so <laughs> Pro Tour. So the week before the Pro Tour, I write this article or not the week before, the Friday of. I write this article that's like standard is not as or standard is more like wide open than we think based on what was happening on Moto and stuff. And then you look at this top eight, it's like you got like a random Jeskai approach, a Ramanap Red, a Marty Vehicles, White Blue God Pharaoh's Gifts, Sultai Energy. Like the top eight was pretty good. Like as, as far as the narrative being like 50% Teamer or 50% Attune with Aether and like a bunch of stuff that's bad or whatever, like this top eight actually looks reasonably diverse. It does. And I, I think that's a function of... I think the top decks held serve. They are the top decks for a reason. They're very consistent. They can punish inefficiencies and stumbles. And I I think they kind of performed to a degree that you'd expect a deck with no real weaknesses to perform to. And and when I say the top decks, I'm kind of speaking specifically about teamer and mono red. There's not a ton of teamer in the top eight and it is diverse, but there was a ton of teamer played. And I, I think they just kind of held serve and put up the win percentages you would expect. But that left a lot of room for these other decks to break through the cracks and, and kind of come to the forefront. I don't think anything has changed in terms of the pillars of the format. I think if you showed up to another tournament with teamer tomorrow, you're making a totally fine decision. I think all of the variants of teamer are completely respectable, but there's other options too. I, I don't think you're priced out and I think you can exploit kind of the cyclical nature of the format and the fact that teamer players correctly predicted that this format would be 50% energy and change their decks to account for that. Yeah, I tried to just have a good plan for the mirror and not necessarily make my deck super inbred. Uh, ba- basically, like the only thing that I found for the teamer mirror was that like Vizier of Many Faces is good because occasionally, very occasionally, the games actually come down to a grind and Vizier is like more copies of your best cards and helps fill your curve. And then Chandra's Defeat is very good against Glorybringer or Chandra if they play it and it is really difficult to break serve. So having a a one mana removal spell for their best card, Glorybringer, is actually like a, a really good way to do that, especially if you're just like, you know, Vizier your dragon and kill it. You have completely turned the tables. So I was sideboarding very light because I I mostly liked my plan. And Sky Sovereign also does some cool things where it makes it so you don't have to be as heavy on spot removal because you don't have to kill like every single Whirler Virtuoso because you have like boats and Glorybringer coup to some degree, you know, like the boat cleans up all the random stuff to the point where you don't need all like the abrades in your deck basically. Yeah, this seemed like a great boat tournament, um, and and I think a lot of boat lists found success. There's just enough going on, uh, kind of on the fringes of the tournament, where boat really got a chance to shine, and there are some archetypes that were really, really punished by Sky Sovereigns. I think may be actual players going forward, so it wouldn't surprise me if the number of Sky Sovereigns even ticks up a little bit more over the next few weeks. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's good against Siphoner. It's good against any random creature deck with vehicles because it it lets you clean up all the small stuff and it blocks heart of kieran you know yes yep boat is excellent it is so good and if i were going to atlanta i would basically not change a whole lot about my teamer deck like i was very cognizant of the god pharaoh's gift decks but i did think that things like mardu and ramanap red were gonna move more towards like black red and maybe not even be like the vehicles version of black red so i cut an appetite had a River's Rebuke, which doubles as God Pharaoh's Gift Hate. And Rebuke is very good in the mirrors that involve Scarab God, too. So, like, I think I did a pretty good job of, like, consolidating my sideboard. But now that the Pro Tour has happened, I think you can, like, basically not do that. Like, I had a bunch of counter spells and, like, Nisses in my sideboard that basically aren't good against any of the decks that people are playing. Like, I was worried about control to some degree. Like, I wanted to respect it. But now I think that those cards can become, like, more hyper-focused other things for the decks that did well at the Pro Tour. What was your abrade count? I had one main, one sideboard. Okay. It's interesting to see how that number will change in the coming week. I could see that certainly being on the uptick right now. Yeah. Uh, so Magma Spray is is good game one against the aggro decks, but post-board, you're all about killing Rampaging Ferocidon. So if you want to do something like play three abrades, I, I would not be opposed to that. And... It doesn't let you win the game against like Pascal's version of the gift deck because he can just like cast all his stuff, you know? Sure. So it's it's not like loading up on disenchants actually helps you. Like it doesn't help you that much, at least. 
No, I also like it in the context of like the Sultai decks coming to prominence again. And I, I think it cleans up, you know, obviously Winding Constrictor, having more answers to Winding Constrictor is never bad. I don't know. It's just a, a quick, based on the metagame coming out of the Pro Tour, a quick surface change that I would start with is upping my braid count a little bit. Even if it's just a small up going to two copies main, that's kind of my starting point for a teamer list this week. Yeah, man, I'm down. Uh, the other thing that changed for me during the tournament was changing how I was sideboarding against Mono Red, where previously I was cutting all the dragons. And now I think, especially with how all the lists at the Pro Tour were configured with like all the Harsh Mentors and Ferocidons. Like I think just like all the five drops are good against them. Like the, the dragons are good, the boats are good, the coups are good. So the game's more kind of trend longer at this point and you just need the removal to kind of answer these really impactful small creatures they now have access to. Yeah, and like you also just like want flyers to get over Hazaret. And yeah, I, I just found that like we would like trade cards and they would end up with like a Ferocidon or something. And if I didn't draw a five drop, like it was really hard for me to compete. But if I did have a five drop at any point, like they basically couldn't answer it. But like they didn't have to because I was just like boarding them out because I was concerned I was just going to get beaten down, you know? So what do your cuts look like now against Mono Red? I don't know. Uh, that's It's very interesting because especially since they're slowing down, I don't think you can really cut like Rogue Refiner or anything. Like I think you no. need that sort of thing. Uh, I sat next to a few people that were like, keeping in slash boarding in Vizier in many faces against Mono Red just to make their own Hazaret, which also seems kind of like a fine plan. Yeah, that seems okay. And copy their glory bringers and stuff. So I don't know. I would have to to retool my configuration for that matchup for sure. Interesting. I, I think there's a lot of... Let's not do another hour and a half on Teamer, but I, I do think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. A lot of kind of ripple effect changes where you do one thing and it actually changes your entire package and your entire plan. This continues to be an issue, but I saw someone on Facebook today. Oh, it was Pete Ingram. He was posting, he inquired about how people were cutting long tusk cubs in the teamer mirrors. And that was basically his question. How do you board in the teamer mirror? Do you cut cubs? And I was just like, this question is impossible to answer because it's so dependent on everything you're going to do post-board, on everything your opponent is doing post-board, on the cards you have access to in your sideboard. Like, There's no way you can just ask that question raw at this point and expect to get a reasonable response that actually means anything without all of these other variables being considered. Right. It, it is all about context, right? Like if someone answers and says like, oh, I cut cub all the time and I'm like 80% in the mirror, well, okay, cool. But like, what else are you doing? Like if you're cutting cub, you have to have a better long game plan than them. Mm -hmm. And does your long game plan trump just the teamer mirror or does it trump the four color mirror also? Because I find it hard to believe that you're going to be like exactly. Sarah God and, and Vraska going long. Cedric asked me this question once, is Keldon Halberdier good? The, the most meaningless question you could ever ask, right? <laughs> There's just well, nothing there. It Clearly, he's drafting, and it's just like, what are you actually trying to ask me? Like, is this card a B plus? Is it an A? Is this, is it like, you know, you're trying to figure out if you should take this over Cannonade or something? Like, is it a specific pick? Like, ask better questions. Yeah, and this isn't, like, I'm not trying to disparage anyone asking these questions because they're trying to get at a very interesting issue, a very nuanced topic, but unless you're phrasing it in a certain way, I don't think any answer you get, first of all, I, I couldn't give an answer. Second of all, any answer you get, what does that really mean to you? Right. Because just because someone else cuts cubs, you know, yeah, if I have a late game plan that involves tons of rascas and boats and my entire game plan is based around just playing this long grindy game and I, I can actually beat scarab gods in the late game, then sure, I can I can cut all my cubs. But if the fact remains that I'm a little weak to Scarab God, my entire game plan is based upon early pressure, well, then my cubs aren't going anywhere. Yeah, it's get under them or go over them. That's about mm -hmm. it. Yeah, mm -hmm. so it, it is just about asking better questions to make sure that you get the answer that you're looking for. If Cedric says, is Keldon Halbert your good? And I say yes, does that help him? Yeah, that means it still means nothing. Right, so... I, I yelled at him for like 30 minutes about this. Uh, and and now, now we know. We communicate much more effectively, and it's awesome. Like, he will ask me the actual question that he wants answered. Keldon Halberdier versus this card, or, you know, whatever. Yeah, this is something that I get. At times, I'm not the best teacher. I'll be open and honest about that. And I can get frustrated um, when I'm talking about magic to people who are kind of still learning the ropes. And that's not to say I'm like, rude or, or won't happily answer a question because I'm, I'm more than willing to share my time. But 
sometimes when I'm being asked questions like that, it is really hard for me to kind of get them to the place where I need them to be to actually have a worthwhile conversation that they'll benefit from. Because just asking a question like that is just so devoid of meaning. You know, there's not a lot of times where I default to my lawyering background. I feel much more like a magic player than a lawyer on most days. Okay. But a, a huge portion of lawyering is just like, asking good questions and making sure your questions are tailored to get the information you actually need. Would I be a good lawyer? What do you think? <laughs> um, you know, I, to answer this question, you kind of so have to- So this is obviously like a, a version of a bad question, right? Like I'm not looking for like specific things, just like kind of like yes or no. This is kind of a throwaway question. So I realize the answer is not helpful, but it's just like, I don't know. I, at times I have felt that I have like characteristics that could make me a good lawyer. So I was curious about your thoughts. No, my, my answer is yes, because you're inquisitive, you want to learn and you're smart. And I, I honestly think like so much of what I be a good anything is just, are you willing to learn? Are you willing to kind of eat crow for a little while to accept the fact that you're not going to be the smartest guy in the room and you're going to have to kind of absorb information and admit your weaknesses and address your weaknesses. And if you can do all of those things, I think you can be a great anything. But the analytical nature of magic definitely lends itself very well towards something like lawyering. And also the, the problem with that question, not to harp on the nature of the question, but being a lawyer means so many different things at this stage. Like, are you asking if you would be a good trial attorney or would you be a good, what we call like a big, big law associate where you're just kind of like grinding paper all day? Trust me, you wouldn't be good at that because no human's good at that. No yeah. human is meant to do that. No, I, I, I was, I was mostly asking in like the, the glamorized, romanticized, like TV lawyer version. TV, yeah. I think you'd make a great TV lawyer. Hell yes. yeah. Nice. Yeah, I think you have the right skill set. For that. I need to find that time machine so I can skip like the 10 years needed to actually build up and become good. Yeah, good idea. You don't want to go through that. Yeah. Uh, in the meantime, I'll just, you know, try and ask better questions. Mm -hmm. That's the main the main lesson. Anyway, dude, mono white vampires. Yeah, I want to talk about all these sweet decks that are lurking just below the surface. But to say this deck lurked below the surface when it went eight and two is kind of uh, unfair, I think. Yeah. So Wilson Hunter was the person who went eight two and... I don't know. I I, I, did, I basically think Wilson is kind of a badass. I know nothing about him, so tell me his story. Uh, Why is he a badass? He's mostly a legacy dude. Has played a lot of Storm. Uh, I believe I've seen him play like some Miracles and stuff. Like he does not shy away from like playing difficult to play decks, you know. And he's just like always doing well. Uh, he's like from North Carolina, I think. Played a bunch of SCG events. Like top aided some Invitationals. Top aided some Grand Prix. And he's just like, he always seems like he's very solid. So it's just like, oh man, like at some point I was just like, dude, is, is Wilson going to top eight this BT? Because that's awesome. And then I, I see him in the, the feature match area, given the beatdowns with like a Danto Vanguard. Yeah, there's some crazy cards. Let's not forget Legion Conquistador, who also made an appearance in this deck. The oh, new yeah. Squadron Hawk. New and nerfed Squadron Hawk, I think. Oh, well, well nerfed, well nerfed. But yeah, this this is a really, this is a deck that very much preyed on the expected metagame, a metagame that was kind of not prepared for a go wide deck. I can see this deck, certainly in its better draws, give Teamer absolute fits. Could Teamer adapt to this deck? Absolutely, without question. But as it stands now, this deck would give Teamer fits. Yeah, Adanto Vanguard is very difficult for them to deal with. You look at his removal suite with like Ixalan's Binding, Cast Out, Thopter Arrest. Like he has a, a lot of very good, just like general answers to random permanence, which I think people were just like trying to exploit those weaknesses. Like maybe not like Hidden Stockpile so much these days, but just like uh, the God Pharaoh's Gift deck, for example, right? And sure. it's just like he, he just has like a bunch of natural answers to things like that. He has Scavenger Grounds too. He's like this weirdo beatdown deck that, especially if you draw a Catcher's Monument, I think is like probably pretty good. Yeah, Catcher's Monument certainly, I, I mean, that makes Legion Conquistador look real good, right? It kind oh, yeah. of upgrades very quickly in that circumstance. Yeah, now it's a better Squadron Hawk. Yes, there, there's a lot of cool stuff going on with this deck. I think it was very well built, carefully crafted to beat an expected metagame. This is a difficult deck to bring into an unknown metagame. I think there's a lot of ways to punish this deck. I think things like Approach probably murder this deck repeatedly. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I don't see any, any way to really make that matchup palatable. And that was kind of a big thing for a very big portion of this format 
it was trending down going into this PT, despite the fact there was an approach list in the top eight. Very non-traditional one, albeit. But yeah. Uh, yeah, this was the right time for this deck to come to prominence, for sure. Yeah. No, th- it was it was perfect, for sure. Going forward, I mean, if people pick up, like, Ballista, it's not great. You know, it's certainly not great for this deck. What happens after a Pro Tour is always pretty interesting because the top eight has a bunch of teamers and random stuff, and the deck that won has not, like... It has been popular at various points. Like people seem to like Snake Ballista, but after the open, like not a lot of people picked up Saltai. No, it, it faded very hard, and I'm trying to kind of piece together exactly why. I think it was just bad against Teamer. It was bad against Glorybringer, and that was it. Yeah. So if you assume like kind of the response from Teamers to keep make sure to get the good cards back into their deck, and that's how you're going to make this matchup fine again. And and then where do we go from there? Well, stuff like blue black and come back into the fold and and try and punish teamer that way this deck seems like we'd have a fine matchup against that t- style of control i think as long as if, if steps are made to kind of tone down ballistas a little bit and approach stays out of the metagame this deck could be a fine choice going forward but this is always going to require a format check this can't be your deck like you're you can't go all in on the mono white vampires you're going to have very bad weeks in that case but if you're keeping a good eye on the way the metagame is trending this will be a fine pickup in certain weeks yeah this is a deck that you sit on the shelf until a month from now when someone wins a gp with it yep so we have we have five more weirdo decks wilson went eight and two Elliot Bassard also went eight and two with white blue cycling. What the hell? Yeah, dude, I I don't even know what to say about this deck. I honestly do not. First of all, it's sixty one cards, so there there's that bridge we have to cross. Well, is it because like all the cards cycle, so it's really like you're playing a third oh, card deck? You, you can't realistically <laughs> make that argument where you're playing a Drakehaven deck. Like this deck does nothing without Drakehaven. Or kind of Abandoned Sarcophagus, another key card in the deck. Yes, Abandoned Sarcophagus. Oh, yeah. I can't even give you an opinion on this deck. It looks crazy. Abandoned Sarcophagus popped on my radar for a second when my friend Connor mentioned it to me a few weeks prior to the PT. He kind of clues me in on a lot of decks before they do anything. He's like, I think this Abandoned Sarcophagus deck is pretty good. And I'm like, shut up. This is stupid. And then, you know, a week later, it's 8-2 at the Pro Tour. But yeah, I I have nothing to say here. This deck is crazy. I don't know if it's favored versus anything. It seems like maybe it's okay versus Teamer. Maybe. I mean, Fumigate is historically a fairly good card, but post-board it gets much worse. He's got the Scarab God in post-board games, so maybe he's doing that against Teamer. I just don't know, man. This deck is crazy. Yeah. uh, I mean, this deck 5-0 to League at, at some point before the Pro Tour, and I was just like, come on, like... I, I am not going to build this and play with this. Like, I, I don't believe that this thing is very good. Maybe it's okay against red. Maybe it's okay against traditional teamer. I think it, it's weird though, too, because like teamer has been playing like more and more disenchants, just like yes. slice in twain your Drakehaven. What? Yeah. I guess this stretches your disenchants, right? Like there's a lot of targets, a lot of must kills here. So that's right. kind of how that goes. And as far as the red matchup, it's hard to believe this is good versus red when they're boarding eight cards. Yeah, that is true. He he is like very committed to trying to beat red, but yeah. So I have to imagine it's it's probably got the same like white blue approach problem in game one, where it's just like there's just not enough there. Like your first three turns are so empty that you end up way too far behind. Yeah, that's that's certainly reasonable. Uh, I think we can cross this off the list. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, props for going eight two, and probably as the lone representative of this deck, I don't think it was widely played. I just don't, I don't have the time to devote to this. I don't know where to start. So yeah, I I have to take this off my list, but if this works for you, more power to you. Hell yeah. All right. uh, Next one is kind of in the similar vein to the mono white vampires. We have a green white aggro deck that a lot of the Brazilians played. I think Thursday we went to the hall of fame induction and Steve Rubin stayed behind and played a league with teamer, which he five owed. And one of the decks that he played against was green white tokens. And we just like, didn't talk about it that much because we're just like, Oh, whatever. It's probably not someone playing the Pro Tour. As it turns out, it was probably someone playing the Pro Tour. What's interesting is that this deck actually was, or a version very close to this, was circling around prior to the Pro Tour in the game podcast Discord. Yeah, I did see, I saw that too. Yeah, one of one of our Patreons brought it to the fold and everyone was talking about it and everyone kind of got excited about it. It's got a lot of cool stuff going on. This also reminds me of every new set. I just do kind of a deck dump, a bunch of ideas that kind of speak to me. And I basically had this deck 
but it was a little bit more focused on geez now that she sees no play whatsoever i'm blanking on her name tashana okay so sure. it was it was designed to go a little wider and and almost combo out in that way i still think that maybe there's a home for that card in this deck I, i'm not sure in which matchups in a format where there's essence scatters floating around that's kind of a hard sell but i, I do think this deck has a lot of room to improve to innovate there's something here it's kind of a very all-in-ish strategy but there are some wrinkles to it it can gain life fairly effectively i don't know i don't, I don't know what to make of this deck this is more interesting than some of the other decks we've seen and i think willie adel said that they as a team posted a 60 percent win rate which isn't outstanding but it's certainly good uh when considering the level of competition so this is something I would explore, and I think there's room to tune as well. I don't think this is a soft archetype. Some of the numbers look really weird. I have a feeling this is kind of something they may have arrived on a little late in the process, yeah. which could definitely stand to undergo some tuning. Yeah, I could totally see that too. The sideboard is just like a hodgepodge of random cards. I'm pretty yes. surprised to not see something like Sky Sovereign in the sideboard, just something that like lets you play a little bit of a bigger game. It doesn't necessarily have to be like exactly Sky Sovereign, but you know, just it's it's random cards. And just none of the main deck cards are are really like playable standard cards, you know? No, they're they're not good on their own. <laughs> they're not good cards whatsoever. But it's one of those things where in conjunction they do enough, maybe. Possibly, uh, you know, don't don't ever underestimate the amount of value you get at a Pro Tour from people not knowing your deck and having just no clue what you're doing in post-board games and, and even in pre-board games, you know, I, I'm not sure how many people were playing around Appeal to Authority. Zero. Yeah, probably zero. And it, it's like, gotcha. Um, but once this gets out, you know, it could be one of those decks that just dramatically downgrades in quality very quickly. I would put a few a few games in with this deck, though. I think there's something interesting here. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, this and Mono White Vampires and uh, Mono Black Aggro to some degree and, like, the Black Red Aggro deck to some degree, like, all of these decks are pinpointing a weakness to just go wide strategies. Like, yes. no, there, are, there are no Sweltering Suns. We almost played a Fiery Cannonade. But like it didn't kill enough things for like the mm -hmm. real decks, right? Yeah, like you you are not getting punished by like having three creatures on turn three or four creatures on turn three. Like it's just not happening. So if you have a way to just like goldfish your opponent, that's probably a pretty good strategy. Yeah, and one of these go wide decks will prove to just be like the correct one for when that strategy is best. I have a feeling it's probably vampires, but you know, some games will kind of suss that out. It is an important kind of aspect of the metagame to be filled though, and, and nobody was filling it. So you see a, a lot of different archetypes finding success within the same macro archetype, doing the go wide thing. Right. The cards just look so bad, right? Yeah, there's a lot of bad cards in this deck. And it, it doesn't matter because it is the overall strategy that you're employing and the fact that a lot of people are not prepared for that sort of strat. Yeah, ton, ton of gotcha here. Appeal to authority is just like the maximum gotcha card with some blossoming defense backup. So a, a lot of surprise value. Yep, it is a weirdo pseudo pummeler deck, you know? Mm -hmm. All right, so next up we have Monoblack Aggro played by Andres Prost. Definitely butchering his name, but it is kind of what you would expect. Like a bunch of bone pickers and he has the Yeheni Bantu's Last Reckoning combo, which... I don't even know why people play that because after playing like with and against this deck with Teamer, it, it, just, it doesn't seem like you need that. That's interesting because if there was a thing that kind of interested me in this deck, it's that combo. I like it as like an I win. Um, there's a lot of kind of jockeying for position and board stalls that go on um, in current standard. And this kind of just looks to circumvent all of that while also just having a very reasonable clock game and, and and being able to kind of just get board presence and go a little wide and, and win games that way. I think the consideration to make is kind of between Yaheni Bantu and a Ruin Raider type strategy. Like that's kind of the two balancing points and deciding which one you want is kind of based on the metagame. Given the prevalence of Teamer and other energy strategies, I don't hate the Bantu's approach. I, I do think Bantu's Last Reckoning is a fairly bad card but these two things in concert with each other, I kind of like it. I kind of like the I win aspect of it. Cool. Yeah, I don't know. I, th I think I would prefer to just play more good cards, but we're stretching, sort of. Night Market Lookout is not like a standard all-star, really. Like, I do think it does good work with Aether Sphere Harvester and everything, but 
I really like the red. I mean, like Hazaret seems like a better plan against Teamer than than Bontus and uh, Bowman Courier is obviously incredible. So I don't know. I guess that's kind of the wrinkled point that I, I'm skipping over is that as far as a mono black aggro list goes, I like this Bontus plan. As far as a black X aggro list, I'm not sure there's a lot of reason why I want to be mono black aggro over black red aggro and getting access to Hazaret like you're talking about. So. Reasonable. One thing that I did run into while playing Teamer and certainly affected how I sideboarded against these decks was that like Gonti out of the sideboard of these decks, especially in combination with Gifted Aetherborn, was like very, very good. Like the Death Touch playing against Teamer is pretty real. Yeah, Gonti's kind of criminally underplayed right now. And I think the only decks that were really getting to it were you talked about the four color Teamer lists, which were a little bit more focused on black and, and they were starting to get access to Gonti. But the card as a whole is not seeing the respect it deserves. Yeah, definitely agree. Uh, Teamer Pummeler, sort of. No, this is just blue-green. Just straight blue-green, yeah. This is the uh, Patrick Dickman deck, obvious known lover of uh, creature combo decks, and he found one here. He's all in on flyers. He's got four cartouche of knowledge, one one with the wind in his, uh, you know, larger than life, blossoming defense, dive down, Pummeler deck. I like it. It feels very infect S. I think he found kind of a very nice version of a standard infect list. I think maybe I could back away from some of the ancillary stuff going on here and just get some ops into the deck for consistency's sake and really maximize the kind of uh, explosive draws you're looking for. Uh, but maybe I'm just trying too hard in that case. Maybe he's just got the best energy stuff here and he's, he's moving in on it. But yeah, cool deck. I'm not sure exactly what it's designed to exploit. I think, again, this is getting a lot of gotcha value value and it, it's it's going to trend down following the pro tour not something i would move all in on at this stage sure uh so worth noting he only has four botanical sanctum and two island only 20 land uh aether hub two but like obviously you don't want to spend your energy to cast opt on turn one fair enough difficult to cast opt in this deck yeah so and, and this deck basically tries to curve like two three four so i could see him just being tight on mana a lot of the time but yeah i think this is a very good version of this list and before the PTE, Fro and I were talking about things like this, and it's like, eh, you know, do we want to go down this path of trying to get under the mirror matches, which is what this deck does, and I think it does pretty well. Yeah, I, you know, I the whole Flyers thing, the one with the win package was something I explored in a more traditional teamer list for a while, just because I do think that's a very successful strategy right now. Oh, yeah. um, obviously, his deck is, is optimized to kind of move in on an aura like that with the six Hexproof cards, the four Blossoming Defense, two Dive Down. So there's a lot I like about this deck. I just think that it's going to be more difficult to kind of engineer these tough board states where the list is just a known quantity. Like I'm sure very many times people thought they were playing around spell pierce and they just got dive downed and completely blown out. Yeah. I mean, I also think it's reasonable that he could go like servant into Hydra and they're just like, ah, teamer. And then he just kills them. Very true. Yeah. Or he just slaps a cartouche on the bristling Hydra and you know, a deck that can, there's a lot of decks that will not be able to deal with that under any circumstances. Yep. Definitely agree. Uh, so last weird deck I want to talk about is this Grixis Control deck by Shaheen Sarani featuring Sideboard All-Star Multiform Wonder. Yeah, Shaheen is kind of like, you have to look at his decks the same way you would look at a Shodi Asaoka deck at this point, meaning that he's probably the only person on the planet who can win with this deck. Why would I want to do this as opposed to something like, you know, a more traditional approach control list? I'm not quite sure. I guess there was kind of a little bit of a window for Torrential Gear Hulk to maybe step up while Abrades were trending down. I think Abrade is going to trend up right now. It's hard for me to see really moving back all in on Gear Hulks. But again, getting value from an unknown list. People really do underestimate the value of an unknown list at a Pro Tour. You spend so much time preparing for a known metagame, especially for this Pro Tour, where the metagame was very much sussed out. There had been a ton of high-level tournaments leading into it. So I see what Shaheen was going for here. As far as going forward, you can't sell me on this deck. Uh, Multiform Wonder is a neat answer to the problem of needing, or at least feeling like you need some life gain against Mono Red, but I don't think that's enough. I think this deck probably still gets absolutely smashed by Mono Red and, and probably has some good matchups elsewhere. But yeah, the Multiform Wonder World of Virtuoso thing is not going to get the job done. I think I remember him saying that he had to sideboard those six cards to get to even. I could see that. 
I, I, he was probably being a little generous with even as well. Uh, yeah. At least if this deck is a known quantity, I, I think I have a hard time seeing it going even in post-board games. I mean, if you really want to play this deck and you're worried about mono red, I'm sure you can probably go even further, you know, more cheap removal. What's weird to me is that this is basically blue-red with a Vraska's Contempt, a Fatal Push, and two Scarab Gods. And I, I question whether or not that's actually worth it. I could see the Scarab God. I mean, it is certainly a premium control finisher, very difficult for opposing decks to deal with. But when kind of every deck is about the Scarab God and the format has started to warp around it to some degree, it does get a little bit worse. It's funny though, whereas like, I'm willing to at least think about this deck. I, w- I would never think about playing blue-red control. So maybe it's just the fact that this is novel that is even drawing my eye to it whatsoever. Yeah. Um, and it, if it was, you know, a more tuned down, like a more reasonable list and maybe even a better list, I would just wouldn't even give it a second glance because I think the strategy is so untenable right now. Yeah, dude, take take a normal boring deck that that's like tier two or tier three, add a color to it. And then it's like, yeah. ooh, yeah, maybe it's ooh, good. Deck. Yep. <laughs> Fancy. I, th- I think that's what's going on here. And, you know, props to Shaheen. He succeeds with these strategies on a regular basis. He knows what works for him. And there's a lot to be said for play style. I don't recommend picking this one up, though. Not something I want to invest some time in. Uh, not for a GP. Obviously, if you're going to like FNM or PPTQ sure. or whatever, you want to splash around, by all means. Yeah. All bets are off uh, at, at FNM. You do whatever you do. Hell yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think this Pro Tour has kind of shown that the format is a little bit more wide open, and obviously these decks that we talked about like did not crack the top eight or anything, but like I said, there were some interesting decks in top eight, and Pascal's, I think, specifically looked pretty good to me. Yeah, I like it as an approach. You, you know, if you believe that God Pharaoh's Gift is, is viable, I like doing it the way Pascal did it. A lot more than kind of the slower plans or the the Esper lists. I, I think Pascal had the right approach to God Pharaoh's gift for this tournament. I just don't know if that's something I want to do going forward. I, I love excluding Gate to the Afterlife. That's a card that after we lost Insolent Neonate, I don't think Gate to the Afterlife is really realistic anymore. Like I said, Pascal's doing it right. Uh, very impressive finish. But I'm not entirely sold on, on God Pharaoh's gift. And I don't think God Pharaoh's gift had a really successful tournament on the whole, even though Pascal did. Yeah, uh, that, that's completely fair. Although if his list was the correct one, Okay. Um, yeah, then maybe there's more, there's more to be said for it. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of people playing like Blue Black Gift, which I think doesn't do anything particularly well. So yeah, going forward, I definitely think that there are going to be, you know, more braids and just more answers to artifacts in general. And people's sideboards are going to be more focused towards the decks that did well in the Pro Tour. So uh, I would not recommend God Pharaoh's Gift going forward, uh, at least for like the immediate future. But Again, like kind of like the Vampire's deck, like put it on a shelf. There might be a week where it's actually good. Yep. Cyclical standard again. Very nice change of pace as opposed to a standard kind of dominated by one archetype or two archetypes like we've seen over the past few years. So good times for standard. What did you think about the Pro Tour falling later in the format? I hated it. Yeah, I, it, it, it killed a lot of the excitement for me. It just like disrupted... The, my sense of things, you know, and I, mm. it, it is possible that that led to me like, well, maybe like coming off of like nationals or something like I felt pretty good about worlds, felt pretty good about nationals. And then maybe it's just like, oh, you know, this is a pro tour where I I don't have a reason to do poorly in this PT because of like how prepared I am. So then maybe I'm just like, oh, you know, I don't have to try as hard. Yeah. So it, it did kind of get me. But yeah, I, I do think the excitement thing is a big deal. Uh, Worlds was kind of the pro tour for me, and I I don't know. I like it when it's close to set releases, even though I think that if all the pro tours were like this, I would probably have more success just in the long term. Yeah, I see what you're saying. It seems like it it hits your kind of wheelhouse a little bit more, your professed strengths, but... I kind of hope this is the last time we do this. The the buzz and excitement wasn't there for me. You know, you kind of, I guess we know a lot of stuff isn't viable at this stage, right? Like we, we know a lot of Ixalan cards are already misses. We would have found that out at this tournament had this been, you know, week two. We would have seen things like the Ripjaw Raptors that everyone was buzzing about at this tournament. And a few of them probably would have done well by chance, whereas there probably wasn't a Ripjaw Raptor in the room in this tournament. Yeah, I, I think we missed a lot on a lot of that excitement and a lot and a lot of the sussing out of a new set that we'd usually get from a pro tour. Yeah, and then Rivals is going to come out, presumably juice up some of the the tribal decks. 
like vampires is already doing okay, mostly because of Adanto Vanguard, and then the Pro Tour is going to be modern. So, <laughs> just yeah, I wonder what this is going to do to the bottom line. It'll it's interesting to see if I mean obviously it's hard to say how much this impacts sales, even if sales do trend down a little bit. But it's interesting when you think about the use of the Pro Tour as, as a vehicle for showcasing these new cards, and it's not doing a great job of that over the course of Ixalan or Rivals of Ixalan. I mean, unless Rivals of Ixalan is like the greatest modern set of all time, it completely changes the face of modern, which, you know, I'm not anticipating that. But you never know. Wizards could have it planned appropriately and is really preparing a huge curveball for us. Yeah, who knows? Probably not. I mean, Probably I, not. I'll, I'll ask majors. Yeah, yeah. Tell them to uh, give <laughs> us the, the game that information that we're always privy to. Just to be I'm clear, just, just to be clear. Yeah, he's we don't not, have any inside information. He's not going to tell me. He's a jerk. Mm-hmm. He doesn't let me have any fun. And if you guys listen to the podcast, you would know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, I, I think that's about it. Next week. I don't know, man. Do you want to do, do modern or standard? Maybe it depends on what happens in Atlanta. Yeah, let's see what happens. You know, I, I'm having fun doing kind of, I, I think the topic shows are really a lot of fun. I, I really like the way we approached the teamer deep dive. I thought the the modern solving the format thing went really well. Yep. So, you know, if, if we have any listeners who think there's a really cool topic, I would certainly take submissions that way. Hell yeah. And we can brainstorm a bit and, and come up with something really cool for the next time we show up. Yeah, man, I'm done with that. So. Awesome. Uh, undecided. That's game. Good luck.